0: Hello, and welcome to Food Systems, a podcast from the Forum for the Future of Agriculture, where we discuss new ideas that can shape a sustainable food system from farm to fork, from policy to consumers, and everything in between. I'm your host, Robert De Graff, and you can find us on Twitter at Forum for Ag. These episodes will be available every other week on all major podcast platforms. Before we get started, we'd like to say a quick thank you to the FFA Founding Partners, the European Landowners Organization and Syngenta, as well as the FFA Strategic Partners, Cargill, The Nature Conservancy, Rabobank, Thought for Food and the World Wildlife Fund. Please enjoy this episode. Hello, and welcome back to Food Systems, where today we're going to be talking about sustainable diets with Brent Loken. Brent is the former director for science translation at the EAT Forum, one of the co-authors of the EAT Lancet report on food, planet and health. And he's the current global food lead scientists at the World Wildlife Fund, which is one of the strategic partners of the FFA. Brent, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you very much, Robert. It's great to be here.
0: Today, we're going to be talking about your latest report called Bending the Curve, the restorative power of planet-based diets. We'll put a link in the show description for the listeners. A planet-based diet is about a diet that is healthy for both individuals as well as the planet and sustainability. So what does a planetary diet look like in practice for, let's say, someone like you or me, a European with an average income?
1: You know, we use the term planet-based diet because we wanted to focus on, like you said, it's a diet that's good for people and it's also good for the planet. And we wanted to move away from this notion that the only diets that are good for the planet are plant-based diets, you know, because, you know, what we're saying is that this is a diet and that, that is very diverse and it takes on many different forms. So this could be a flexitarian diet, uh, which has a little bit of meat in it. Um, This could be a diet, uh, it could be a vegan diet, a vegetarian diet, a pescatarian diet. So a planet-based diet inherently is very flexible and can uh, uh, take many, many forms. And it's it's important to point out here um, that... you know, a little bit of meat consumption is okay here, you know, and and as we start to think about these diets, we tend to think it's all about plants, you know, so so if you were an average consumer, you were going to go into a supermarket, you were, you know, you were going to buy some foods, you know, the focus would be on things like nuts, lentils, vegetables, um, also fruits, you know, the focus would be on plants and eating more of those, Um, and less of a focus on consuming meats as the center of your plate. So it's really taking that and putting it out to the side um, and having more of the focus be on more of the fruits and vegetables and more of the plants.
0: Okay, but obviously, I think what most people will hear, as they did when the Eat Lancet report was published a few years ago, was that this diet does still involve a substantial reduction in the amount of meat that is eaten. If I remember correctly from the Eat Lancet, it was about... 14 grams or one ounce of red meat on a day poultry maybe a bit more but just to translate it for our readers the portion that is roughly recommended would be give or take one chicken nugget a day that's still a fairly substantial reduction from what most people have now
1: (laughs) that's yeah that's a very good point I i mean it's a it's a fairly substantial reduction in some places you know so in uh mainly um Western countries, so if you're looking at uh, Europe, U.S., Australia, Argentina, Brazil, uh, so it, in some countries in the world um, where meat is overconsumed, consumed it, it would be a pretty large reduction of meat, you know, so. But in many parts of the world, they're not even, even eating 100 grams per week or 14 grams per day. Um, so it would actually involve an increase in actual consumption of meat and dairy, uh, so when we look at a global scale, it's really more of this contract and converge type thinking. Some places and some some countries will have to reduce their consumption of meat. Um, uh, but those countries are currently over-consuming it, and other countries are going to have to increase it. And we're going to have to figure out how to find that 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 important middle area where we can Decrease in some areas, bring it up in other areas, and then find the area that, well, it works for people and it also works for the planet. And we're a long ways off from that point right now. All
0: right. We have had people on the podcast before who agree that there needs to be shifts in diet, but they, some of them have said, no, this needs to be consumer led. The consumer needs to tell us, needs to tell the market and thereby the producers what it is they want. And then what we're already seeing is that meat consumption in some countries is already slowing down because of consumer drive. Is that enough to achieve the levels that we're talking about when we talk about the planet-based diet?
1: No, um, I don't believe that relying on the individual consumer is actually going to be enough, that we're going to have to have government intervention as well, and it really is going to have to be a top-down and bottom-up approach. I think a lot of interventions that we look at tend to focus on more the bottom-up approach where it's the you know, education campaigns, consumer awareness, change individual behavior, and that will uh, um, show the markets what to do or that will signal producers what to actually produce. And I think it, that works to some degree, but that's putting the onus on the individual consumer and not on the other side. And I think that what we also have to have is we have to have um, – some top down regulation you know we have to have you know we need to start pricing foods that are not healthy we need to have some of the incentives put in place that make these foods available and affordable to everybody and I think once we have the both the top down and bottom up working that we can make this happen
0: okay so let 's see how that works in practice i mean that would involve at in some degree i 'm going to come back to the example of meat I know it 's a little bit unfair, but it is. Focal, I think for, for a lot of people, if you go to like a very good butcher and you buy the most organic, free range, high end, you know, happiest chicken breast you could possibly buy, those are quite expensive. They're somewhere between five and 10 euros for 100 grams. So is that most so of the sort of the price we're looking at? And how do, does a politician sell that to to an electorate that's used to not paying that?
1: Yeah, I mean, meat is cheap right now. You know, in many cases, most meat is cheap, unless you're buying that free-range organic meat that tends to cost more. Um, you know, but what we need to do and what we have to figure out how to do is to take that type of meat, which is right now only available to certain individuals who want to eat it, available to everybody. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't think that it's right, and I don't think any of us think that it's right, that only a certain income bracket can afford the best meat out there that can afford, uh, uh free range happy meat, <laughs> whatever that looks like, um, uh, you know. So we have to figure out, and I think we can do it by looking at subsidies, by looking at incentives. We can start to shift this and actually make this happen, um, you know. But uh, we are also, or I think, consumers have gotten used to very cheap meat, and and, and that that is going to have to change
0: okay so the era of cheap meat should be should be over I'm sure that will give our listeners plenty of, of thoughts. I wanted to turn to another part of your report which I found very interesting You give the example of Denmark where meat consumption is already declining slowly but it is declining but there have been bigger increases in things like coffee cocoa demand so chocolate and coffee drinks that are fueling deforestation in countries where that is produced. So is it better for us to have a global trade network where things are sustainably produced? Or as other people on the podcast before, as I said, no, we need to produce more local food.
1: Yeah, this is a very sensitive topic, because there are a lot of individuals that believe that local food production is the way to go. You know, and this is one of the dangers as we're looking at transforming something as large as the global food system is we want to believe that there is an answer, a a panacea, a single solution that will fix everything. Um, And I fear that local food production is one of these panaceas that we tend to look towards, you know. Um, In some cases, local food production works, and it is the best way of, um, and the most environmentally friendly way of actually eating. You know, we, we eat what's locally produced. It doesn't have to actually, you know, travel that far from the farm to your fork. Um, but that's not always the case. You know, in some instances, local food production is not the most environmentally friendly. And you know if you're looking at some developing countries that have to increase consumption of certain foods, that could potentially come at a cost, and that 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 cost could mean cutting down more of their environment to um, to meet that demand if we are if we're only focusing on local food production. Uh, Now, in that particular case, that would have negative greenhouse gas emissions impacts, negative biodiversity loss impacts, and and we might need to solve those instances through increase in trade. Now, um, if we decarbonize the transport sector, which is something that we have agreed to do under Paris, then transporting food around the world won't matter because we're transporting food and it still doesn't have an actual climate impact um, and once we get to that point, and once we start to, you know, um, um, remove some of the environmental impacts out of the transport sector, then then the trade issue becomes less of an issue.
0: All right. So we are already facing a food system that is under severe strain but we also have what is projected to be a further increase in the in the global population the the number that often gets bandied about is the 10 billion people by 2050 how does population growth factor into this discussion because will we need to produce more food overall
1: yeah a lot more you know this is one of those things that we also haven't come to terms with is the fact that we're going to add another 2 billion people to the planet uh, so we're, we're essentially producing enough food right now for 7.4 billion people, um, which I, th- I believe is the number right now, around 7.4, 7.5 billion. Um, but we're doing it by exploiting the natural resources um, and, and we're bankrupting the natural resources right now just to produce food for about 7.4 billion people. So we have to figure out how to produce food for another 2 billion people and do it with less impact and not more. And that's a huge task. We can do it, uh, but the only way that we're going to be able to do it is not only through dietary shifts, um, eating more of a planet friendly diet, a planet based diet, um, but also we have to figure out how to reduce a lot um, of the food which is wasted. You know, right now we're wasting about one third of the food which is out there, which is, you know, that number right now, I I still don't understand why we find that acceptable. Um, And and that has a huge land, land impact. Um, And we're also producing food in ways that are not very good for the planet and we have to figure out how to produce it better And if we do those three things producing food more environmentally friendly uh, Wasting less food and shifting diets towards more planet friendly or planet-based diets uh, We can actually feed every single person on the planet 10 billion people by um, By 2050 a healthy and sustainable diet past past 10 billion people it might be tricky You know, ten billion might be a cutoff. Where upwards of that, it will be hard to actually, uh, you know, do this. So,
0: even if we optimize everything and we project a sort of technological advances still further beyond the ten billion. The ecosystems underpinning the planet essentially would no longer be able to to cope. Is what you're saying?
1: The ecosystems underpinning the planet would no longer be able to cope unless there is some technology that we can't foresee. Unless there is some sort of technological breakthrough in the next thirty years that would, you know, substantially increase, um, increase production of food. But I don't want to bank. The future of the planet and the future of the human species on something which hasn't been developed at this point. And I would rather rely on what we know. And what we know is we can do it with the technology that we have today um, and with the farming practices that we know today.
0: Okay, so let's let's talk briefly about the the farming practices then. Um, apart from the report, you also released a, a video recently with uh, TED Education called "The Perfect Farm." I encourage everybody who's listening to 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 watch it. It's eight minutes. It's quite nice, wherein you uh, lay out sort of a vision of the perfect farm. So, can you describe to our listeners what that looks like?
1: Well, it's definitely a farm that's very different from how we're farming today. You know, we tend to think of farming as being single crops, only corn, only rice. Only soy, um, vast open fields of a single crop, you know, and that's not very Im- that's not a very friendly type of way of actually farming for the planet. This this more planet-friendly farming, this perfect farm, is one that would definitely reduce the environmental impact while increasing yields. And that's what we have to figure out how to do is increase yields on a lot of the soils that we have on a lot of the farms that we have while well, reducing the impact. And you know, both of those have to work in you know, opposite directions. It can be done, um, but, it, but it definitely means that we rethink farming and, it, and it, we, we rethink it by maybe planting more trees on farms. We make it more biodiversity friendly. Uh, do we have to add as much fertilizer on these farms or can we do it through other methods? You know, so it's really this mosaic of different animals and different plants. Uh, different species that were actually farming on the same area of land, and that creates a very thriving um, ecosystem, and very th- thriving system of farmland that uh, allows us to produce food, have high yields, and have very low impact, and, and, and this can be done, and it's been proven that it actually can be done.
0: Now, in the, in the video, you point out some of the elements that, that go into this, including them, as you mentioned, things like agroforestry, intercropping, but also things like more technological solutions from relatively simple cold storage facilities to more advanced robotics and, and that kind of thing, new strains of, of plants. Right now, a lot of farmers don't have the money to invest in anywhere near the sort of the technological aspects of, of what is needed. So where are the resources going to come from? Who's going to pay the bill for this transformation, so to speak?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, this this builds upon my previous comment about technology. Um, I don't want to rely on technology to save us with farming as well, you know. So we, you know, although in that video we do, you know, talk about the important role that technology could play, we're not saying that technology has to be part of the solution. We're saying that it can amplify and actually accelerate what those solutions are. Um, so if we have technology on the farms, we believe that it can actually help increase crop yields, decrease environmental impact. Uh, but that's gonna be expensive, like you said, and somebody's gonna have to pay for it. Um, and you know, we believe that if um, you know, technology does increase yields and do these things that we want, that it has to be available to every single person on the planet. Um, I also believe that the money's there if we want it to be there. You know, If we think about the huge sums of money that went into the COVID relief packages, uh, those funds could be put to, you know, producing some of the best food on the planet in the most environmentally friendly way. You know, I can't think of a much better way of using money like that.
0: I'm sure that there are people who would have another use for that (laughs) yeah yeah i'm sure i i wonder though this is a fairly substantial transformation of of certainly of our diet but also our production system in the ipcc report on one and a half degrees global warming they already say that we need to drop our carbon emissions 45 percent by 2030 from 2010 levels and essentially reach net zero around 2050 so what's the time frame on this transformation how fast do we need to be fast i
1: mean we have to be very fast here you know and i think we have to start wrapping our heads around the fact that this is something that has to happen extremely quickly um you know the age of incremental solutions the age of just doing baby steps is really over. That we really need to start thinking in this exponential type manner, where it's exponential solutions and and you know exponential impact, um, and that's something that we haven't quite grasped yet. You know, if we're thinking about having emissions by twenty thirty, having again by twenty forty, and uh having again by twenty fifty, essentially bringing emissions down to zero by twenty fifty, that's fast. That's very fast. The same goes for the food system. You know, we have to figure out how to. Um, change a food system in a way that decreases impact and also produces more food. Um, uh, you know, so this is something that we can't wait to actually happen. It's uh, it's something that we have to have in place, um, uh, very very quickly. And w- and when we look at it, you know, um, human lives are at stake, um, and uh, uh, there should be. You know, that should be a pretty strong driver for all of us to make this happen.
0: Now, one of the ways, certainly this is, I think, a problem that's more widely recognized around the world now, certainly, than it was 10 years ago. One of the ways that people are trying to tackle this is through the World Food System Summit, uh, part of the UN. You are personally involved with Action Track 3 to boost nature-friendly productions. What are your expectations? Because if you look at Paris, for example, which is a great agreement, but we can't say that we're being that we're living up to the promise as, as a world. What are your expectations of the World Food Summit?
1: Uh, quite big, actually. And I would say that Paris is a pretty, you know, we might not be living up to it, but it's definitely a framework that has pulled the world together. It's given us something to come together and to rally behind. Um, you know, twenty fifteen. All you know, most of the countries on the planet signing up for this. You know, are you know, most of the countries right now are working on their NDCS that are that are starting to develop their um, uh, their new development plans based on how do they meet the uh, not only the SDGs but also the NDCS. You know, and I think the same thing has to happen for um, food systems. Is that some sort of global framework convention or? Um, some sort of coordinating type of framework that helps all the countries to come together and make sense of this because we're asking every single country on this planet to change their food system, to transform their food system. Some places are going to have to reduce consumption of certain foods, some places are going to have to increase, some places are going to have to produce more, some places are going to have to produce less. It's a massively complex puzzle that we have to actually put this together. And in addition, we have to trade food. So we have a lot of national level and regional level food systems, but it's all connected through this one global food system. And because of that, I think it needs to be coordinated through some government or intergovernmental body. Um, So that's why I think the UN Food Systems Summit can really jump in and play the role of of helping to coordinate this uh, international efforts to to fix what, what, what is one of the biggest things that we have to fix right now today, and that's that's the food system. So big expectations. It's definitely needed. Um, um, it will take time. You know, we can't uh, – be naive to think that this is going to happen overnight. Um, so while we're waiting for the UN system and this coordination to take place, we also need the grassroots, the bottom-up efforts to take place. We need individuals to step up we need organizations to step up we need businesses to really step up and lead and we also need individual nations you know some champion countries to really step up and say you know we're not going to wait for the UN to do it we're going to start doing it ourselves um, so you know and if, if we see both at bottom up and top down happening you know
0: i have faith that we can do this so just one more question then we'll start then we'll do the final question you just mentioned uh, champion countries are there any countries that you see right now anywhere on earth where you say, those guys, they may not have a perfect, but they're doing a very good job. They're on a good track and others can learn something from them. Would you have any examples?
1: Yeah. So in our report, we highlight quite a few countries that have pretty decent diets that are low on environmental impact. You know, And when we say about this global transformation of diets, we have to be pretty careful because some countries are have a pretty good diet already you know if you look at India in many parts of India I would say that their diet is mainly plant-based um, it's you know relatively healthy in in you know many areas um, and that from environmental impact is quite low <clears throat> uh, Indonesia also has a very low environmental impact when you look at their diet um, and low consumption of meat as well Uh, You know, so there are countries out there that are eating a pretty healthy diet. And, you know, what we have to look at is that some countries should just hold on to traditional dietary patterns. So, you know, it's not about transforming your diet in those countries. It's more about holding on to what you're doing because what you're doing is actually pretty good. Other places, it's we need to transform it from this unhealthy dietary patterns to something which is more healthy. Um, But that's got to be done at uh, individual nation by nation basis. We need to look at it we need to assess it but there are a lot of countries out there that we have a lot to learn from
0: so we come to the the last question which is the same that we ask everybody who comes on the podcast what is your one idea for a better more sustainable food system that can be either at the individual level the state level the global level the only thing i'm going to take away going to take off the table if you will is the planetary diet because that's obviously what we've just been discussing
1: sure so um, <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll put that back on the table a little bit, and I will expand on it. Okay, you know, I would say that each one of us wants to figure out how we can make the world a better place, and I think we often struggle with it. I used to work in Indonesia, and. I worked on tropical rainforest conservation, and I was asked a lot by, you know, individuals, how do I save the rainforest of Indonesia? How do I protect orangutans? And it was really hard to answer that question if, if, if somebody was sitting in the U.S. or Canada or, or Europe because they sat so far away from the problem. You know, what impact could they have sitting so far away? But this is a great thing about diets. Um, you know, this is a great thing about the fact that you have the, like the power is actually on your plate. You have the power to transform your diet. You have the power to make a choice every single day about what food that you eat, about what food that your family eats, right? You know, and, and, and that is such a empowering thing to have, that that the choice really is ours in terms of uh, the food that we want to eat and the impact that that has on our health we can feel right away and the impact that it has on the planet might be the single greatest thing that you can do. Um, From a larger scale, I think we need to um, push uh, for some sort of international multilateral agreement on food, some coordination that will help to pull the world together to make this happen. I think we're heading there, um, uh, but uh, there needs to be some more nudging in order to make it happen.
0: That's it, I think, for us today. Brent Loken, Global Lead Food Scientist at the World Wildlife Fund. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Robert. My pleasure. You've been listening to an episode of Food Systems, a podcast brought to you by the Forum for the Future of Agriculture. Look for us in two weeks when we release our new episode. And in the meantime, please don't forget to subscribe on your podcast app as ours on Twitter, at ForumFag, for updates on this podcast, news, as well as FFA events. Please check out our website, www.forumforagriculture.com, for more great content. Thank you for listening and enjoy your day.